there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The one thousand one hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the one thousand one hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took two hundred pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. So until then, no inheritance in the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshbel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside to him and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there. And they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is any of us, 
and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Ashtel, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is near. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Israel, and went up and encamped at Kirith-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kirith-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone out to scout out the country, the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite, the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered, the, entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with the weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said, Keep quiet. Put your head on your mouth and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, but to be the priest of the tribe in the clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household bells and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned into the party putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in, in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is, what is the matter with you that you come with such company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us. Let angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. And then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his own. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to age people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because, because it was fast and silent, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was, it was in the valley that belongs to Bethlehem. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. 
And the people of Dan set up, set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was a child. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. How's everyone doing? One person is doing well, um, the rest not so well. Uh, my name is Huey, if we haven't met before, and uh, I'm uh, the pastor here at that church at nine. And uh, let me add my welcome to, to Will, uh, to all of you, and especially uh, if you're joining us for the first time today. It's wonderful to see uh, so many new faces amongst us this morning. Uh, we'll keep Judges 17 and 18 open in front of you, and uh, we're going to have a Let's look at uh, this passage in God's Word together, and uh, we're going to need God's help, so let me pick us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, that you have not left us in the darkness, but that you have shone uh, the light of the gospel uh, in our hearts. Uh, thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and continues to show us your ways. And so we pray that this morning, we might concentrate on your word, and we pray that you help us to tremble at the things that you say to us in ways that will lead us to uh, grow closer with you uh, through our Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, I'm not a very cultured person, but a few years ago I went to see the Van Gogh exhibition uh, in Canberra. Did anyone else go to Canberra to see the Van Gogh exhibition? I'm the only cultured person uh, in this room. Uh, wonderful exhibition. Uh, it had many other paintings as well, but uh, right at the very end they displayed, um, you know, the Van Gogh sunflower painting? Um, it was right at the very end of the uh, the exhibition, and just to prove that I'm not lying, uh, that's me in front of it. Uh, but the, the sunflower painting in real life is simply breathtaking. Uh, the yellow colors are so, so vibrant. The brushwork is magnificent, and the flowers seem to just leap off the paint. Now, you might know that the sunflower painting is also one of the most popular paintings in the world. In millions of homes around the world, you have uh, uh, prints of this painting hanging uh, on the wall, which is not the real thing. Uh, often other painters try to copy the painting as well. So in many lounge rooms, you will have these paintings that have the appearance of looking like the real thing. But when you look very closely, uh, you realize that it falls way short. Uh, we might take the photo now. Now, I want to suggest that today's passage is really all about those who have the appearance of godliness, the appearance of being God's people. But if you look closely, they fall way short of being the real thing. Of course, the Bible is full of warnings about those who externally appear to be God's people but in reality are living in opposition to God. And so uh, in the New Testament, for example, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 of those having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, no doubt this is 
been a problem in the church since the time of the Apostle Paul. And it is a problem to this very day. Who are the ones who have an appearance of godliness but are living in such a way that they have denied God's power? What are the warning signs that suggest a person has all the appearance of godliness but are in fact living Well, we've been looking at the book of Judges for a while now, but uh, strangely, in today's passage, uh, there is actually no judge that is mentioned. Did you notice that? Uh, in fact, from chapter 17, right the way through to the end of the book, there are no judges at all. Why is that? Well, I think it's because uh, the final section of the book of Judges is not meant to show us the life of a judge, so much as to show us how deeply enmeshed in sin the people of God had themselves become. You know, we've been doing all along that uh, the people of God have committed idolatry and doing evil uh, again and again and again in the book of Judges. Uh, here, what we're doing is we're zooming in and we're seeing that uh, up close and personal. Now, you'll see there that the first person we meet in our passage is a person by the name of Micah. Uh, it's a name that means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? And on the surface, uh, this seems to be a bit you know, of a good news story, doesn't it? You know, Micah uh, steals 1,100 pieces of silver, which is a considerable sum of money, uh, from his mother. But the good news is that he turns around. He seems to confess uh, his sin. Uh, he returns the silver to his mother. His mother blesses him. They are reconciled. And to top it all off, his mother commissions uh, or uses part of the, the money to, to, uh, to uh, dedicate it to the Lord. It has all the appearance and hallmarks of a good news story. And so like, if you go beneath the surface, you may have noticed that it's not that simple. For one, uh, why has Michael returned this money? Well, it seems that he's only returned this money because his mother has uttered a curse for the thief. So perhaps he just doesn't want to be cursed. Further, whilst the mother dedicates part of the silver to the Lord, she then goes and commissions a silversmith to make a metal image or an idol, which uh, is a breaking of the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? So, did you notice that Micah seems to have a shrine in his house? And uh, once he sets up the idol in his shrine, well, he ordains one of his sons to be uh, his priest. What is wrong with that? Well, you may remember that. Uh, the people of God in the Old Testament uh, were not allowed to just worship God in any way they saw fit. No, uh, God had clearly told them that He would choose a place where they could worship God. Not in any shrine, in any house, but God would choose a place where He is to be worshipped. And He had also chosen the Levites to be His priests. So He couldn't just ordain your own son. 
they had to come from a particular line in, uh, from the people of Israel. How easy it is, friends, to be someone who can say, Who is like the Alphabet? Who is like God? On the one hand, but be ignorant and disregarding the Lord's word on the other. Now, if we look on in the passage, you'll see there in verse 7 that we have introduced to a young man from the, the tribe of the Levi, the Israelite tribe of the Levi. And again, uh, this seems to be a good news story, doesn't it? You know, this, this man comes from uh, the town of Bethlehem in Judah. He is wandering around, uh, aimless and unemployed. But suddenly, he meets Micah, who offers him a job. And he becomes an important part of Micah's family. But again, I want you to see that not all is right with this picture. For you might remember that the Levites were those in Israel who were not actually given an inheritance of any land by God because they were to live in certain cities allocated by God uh, and to serve God and to serve the people. Now, what you might not know is that Bethlehem in Judah was not one of those allocated cities. And so why is this Levi coming from Bethlehem and why is he out of job? If the people of Israel were listening to God, then the Levites would certainly not have been unemployed. And so that it seems like this Levite is in it only for his own personal gain. So we'll see this later on in chapter 18 as well, but here, notice that it's only when Micah offers him protection and some silver and some clothes and a place to live that he accepts the role of priest. It's also very strange that Micah is the one who is ordaining the Levite here as a priest. In Israel, it's not like any ordinary Joe go and ordain priests. Again, it had to be done in the way that God had said, in the way that God had prescribed for his people. You see, friends, uh, it's very easy to serve God just for comfort. Uh, when I was a student at Bible College, uh, there were some murmurings going on uh, in the college because it seemed like many students were not too keen uh, to serve God in churches out in the rougher areas of Now, you know, many students were happy to work in the North Shore or, you know, in the Eastern Suburbs. I mean, who wouldn't want to work in a church that, you know, overlooks the ocean? But not many were willing to work in the Southwest or in the lower socioeconomic parts of Sydney. But that's not the case now. You see, it's very easy, even for those in full time ministry, to be driven by comfort rather than gospel. But what do we make of all this? Now, well, I want to suggest that this passage has some very important things to teach us about idolatry, which is all about worshipping created things things that we have made with our hands 
rather than the creator himself. It's about putting creative things up on a pedestal so that they take uh, the pride of, 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 of faith in our hearts, even about God. What does this passage have to teach us about idolatry? Well, firstly, it teaches us that the root of idolatry is our deep-seated individualism. The root of idolatry is our deep-seated individualism. Now, you can see it there in verse 6. Uh, come with me to verse 6 of chapter 17. Uh, and you'll see there a very important phrase in the book of Judges. Uh, notice here in verse 6 it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is, when you reject God as king and put yourself as the one who determines wrong and right in your life, then what you will do is you will surely create idols and worship them so that those idols serve you rather than you serve God. Rather than living to serve and please and honor God, you will create idols, and I will create idols that exist to serve me. But secondly, notice the stupidity of idolatry. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but when uh, Micah employs this Levite to be his priest, uh, he wants the Levite and presumably the gods uh, that is. Uh, to be like a father and a guide to him. That is those words. He wants there to be a father and a guide to him. That is, he wants Micah and his idols to protect him like a father, to provide for him like a father, to guide him like a father. But notice that in the very next verse, in verse 11, we are told that actually it's not the Levite who becomes like a father to Micah, but it's Micah who becomes like a father to Levi and his gods. That is, rather than the Levite and his idols protecting and providing and guiding Micah, it seems that Micah is the one who is protecting and providing and guiding the Levi instead. And that's the stupidity of idolatry, isn't it? Uh, the story is told of uh, George Harrison. Anyone know who George Harrison is? Yeah. Yes, he's the guitarist, guitarist for, the, for the Beatles. But uh, the story goes that he once visited a friend who was on his sickbed. And uh, when he got to hospital, when he got to his bedside, uh, you know what Harrison did? He pulled out a Hindu statue and he said to his friend, Don't worry, mate, he'll look after you. He'll look after you. Now, we may not worship statues, but it is true, isn't it, that we can have things that function as little gods in our lives. We also can have functional idols. Sometimes we can end up idolizing and worshiping even good things, like money or relationships or work. 
other times we can mean about idolizing truly evil things like pornography. But whatever the case may be, we end up idolizing things because we believe that these things will take care of us. Is that not true? He'll look after you. He'll look after you. Just put your trust in these things and you'll be okay. Because they, these things will care for you. But of course, the stupidity of idolatry is that it's not those things that end up looking after us, it's us who end up looking after them. You worship statues, you need to house them, and also things to be careful. You worship money, well, you need to stress about how to make it grow, how to care for your money, how to make the most of it. You worship relationships, well, you'll always be stressing about how to keep people happy in your life. And in the end, we'll rely on our deathbed, and we will realize that these things neither care for us, nor can they protect us, or provide for us, or care for us, even though we have poured our entire lives caring for these things. It is the great tragedy of God's people having the appearance of godliness but denying the power of God in their lives. Towards the end of chapter 17, Micah thinks that just because he has a Levite as his priest, just because he has this outward appearance of godliness, well, he thinks that God will possibly be, doesn't he? Even though he's clearly ignorant of God's word, preferring to do what is right in his own eyes rather than doing what is right in God's eyes. Um, I'm often concerned when people I know claim to be Christian people. But it seems like they don't really have an interest in growing in God's word or putting God's word into practice. It's very deceptive because it's easy to have the appearance of godliness, isn't it? It's very easy to come to church when it's convenient. It's very easy to pay lip service to God. It's very easy to think that because I do these things, God will prosper me. Even though I'm living in rejection of God, and simply living in a way that is right in my own eyes, making decisions and life plans that are right in my eyes, rather than what I'm going to be true for God's word. Worshiping my master, living with and having sex with someone who is not my spouse, putting creative things above the creator. God's question to you this morning is to say, Is that me? Now, friends, if we move on to chapter 18, you can see there that we are introduced. Uh, not just certain individuals uh, this time, 
but to a whole tribe in uh, the nation of Israel, uh, and that is the tribe of Ben. And here's the thing. Like chapter 17, the story of Dan in chapter 18 seems like a good news story. Uh, we're told uh, in chapter 18, verse 1, that the people of Dan were looking for an inheritance of land because, as yet, uh, they didn't occupy um, any sizable land in the promised land. And so, what they do? Well, they send five spies, don't they, to go and see whether there is some appropriate land that they can take. Uh, does that sound familiar? Where have we uh, seen that before in the history of Israel? Uh, we've seen it in Joshua, where uh, they, they were sending spies into the promised land uh, to see uh, how good the land that God was giving them really was. But here, the spies go to a city called Lace. And notice in verse 7 how this city is described. Have a look at there, verse 7. Uh, it's a city that lived in security, it says. It was a city that lived high and unsuspecting lives. It was a city that lacked nothing and was wealthy and prosperous and magnificent. You could almost say that it was a city that was flowing with milk and honey. And so it seems on the surface that this is a good news story because this is about the, the people of Dan about to enter a land and taking it as an inheritance, just like God had told them to in the past. However, like the previous chapter, you probably guess that appearances are deceiving, and that there is a lot that is wrong with this story. Now, what is wrong with this picture of the whole tribe of Dan? Well, firstly. Uh, some of you might remember that God had already allocated to the people of Dan some land uh, at the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, if you pull out that map that I've given you in your book, does everyone see the colored map in your book? Uh, you can see the land that was allocated to them there. Um, see, uh, sort of in the middle, there's a dark green patch, and it says uh, Dan. You see that? Yep. Um, that was the land that God had allocated to them. So, what they are doing now is not taking the land that was allocated to them, but they're looking at the city of Laish, which is where? Well, I circled it for you. Uh, it's right at the top of Israel, isn't it? Uh, it's called Danville because they renamed the city of Laish to Dan later on. But they're actually going uh, way up north to a land that wasn't allocated to them. Secondly, notice that on the way to the city of Lagos, the five spies come across the house of Micah, and specifically they, they meet the young Levite uh, that was ordained as, as the priest. And so in verse 5, the spies want the Levite to inquire of God um, so that they might know that God approves of what they're doing. And what does the Levite say? Well, in verse 6, he says, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eyes of the Lord. But it doesn't seem, does it, like he's actually bothered to ask God what he thinks. Here, what he's doing is he's just dispensing his blessings, simply dishing them out without even asking God about what he might think. 
and not at all seeks to see. Thirdly, later on, when the people of Dan send 600 of their men to take the city of Lace, uh, they also come to they also come to Micah's house with the Levites on the way to the city. And uh, what do the people of Dan do? Well, you can see there in verse 17 that they steal uh, the gods that are in Micah's house. They steal the ephod and household gods and the metal image from the, the shrine. And not only that, but they also steal his priest. They even steal his Levite priest by offering him a promotion. In verse 19, they effectively say to him, Well, you know, uh, Mr. Levite, uh, do you want to live the rest of your life serving one man as a priest? Or do you want to effectively become the priest of an entire tribe? Did you notice how Micah responds when he sees the people of Dan walking off with his gods together with the priest? Now you can see it there in verse 24. Have a look with me at verse 24. He says there, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? But I want to suggest that this is actually a very good way to identify the idols in our hearts. Your idols and my idols are the things that, if they were taken away from you, you would feel as though you had nothing else. What have I done? Some of you might know Richard Finn, who uh, is the national director of the University Ministry for the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Uh, Some time ago, he lost his wife, Wanda, uh, to a pretty horrible disease. But I remember hearing Richard being interviewed where he said that he had worked out that if he couldn't continue to serve God, to do Christian ministry after the death of his wife, he would know that family had become an idol. You see, if there is anything in our lives where we would say, what have I got left if they were taken away from us? Then they would be our idols. So we would be completely Oblivious to the fact that whatever is taken away from us, we always have God with us. It is sufficient. It is good. But finally, notice that when the people of Dan capture the city of Lakes, they continue to worship idols. In verse 27, they put the people of Laish to death by the sword. In verse 28, they, they rebuild the city. In verse 29, they rename uh, the city of Laish to Dan. And in verse 30, they set up idols, the same idols that they have stolen from Micah, and they install Levi as their priest. Now, here's something strange. 
seems like idolatry pays off. Doesn't it? I mean, sure, might uh, might be the exception. It might have been less frequent. But for some of the characters in Israel, it does seem like idolatry has paid off for them, doesn't it? You know, the Levite, well, he's done quite well for himself. He's even got a job promotion out of it, even though he was unemployed in the past. Well, how about the, the people of the land themselves? You know, when they started off, they didn't have any land, but here they are living in a city that is secure and wealthy and, and prosperous and wonderful. And yet, my friends, this tells us something very important about idolatry. For idolatry often does have a short-term payoff, you see. I mean, if there was absolutely no possibility of my idols bringing me any kind of joy, any kind of prosperity, any kind of payoff, then why would we like to worship idols in the first place? On my day off, I sometimes think of the one guy to one single. That's what I'm going to do. One guy to one single. It's a beautiful walk along the coast of the eastern suburbs. And sometimes as we walk, we see Bidding for luxury and bidding for pleasure. Uh, and many without God in their lives. And we sometimes turn to each other and we say, what would, our, what would our lives have been like if we had pursued those things? What would our lives have been like if we were not Christians and we pursued the things that everyone in this world? Of course, now, in God's kindness, we come to our senses very quickly. But it is very tempting, For idolatry often does have a payoff. But, brothers and sisters, I want us to see this morning that whilst idolatry may have a short-term payoff, make no mistake, it will lead to judgment in the end. In this morning's passage, I wonder whether you notice what eventually happens to the people of Daniel. You notice it in the Bible reading? You can see it there at the end of verse 30, where the writer of Judges mentions the day of captivity of the land. He's talking, of course, about the day when God judged his own people. He's talking, of course, about that frightening day when God sent the Assyrian army to destroy his own people in the northern kingdom. You see, there is no future of idolatry. For God will judge the idolater who does not repent and turn around to God. It happened to the people of Dan. It happened to all of the Old Testament people of Israel. And it will happen to us if we do not repent and turn to Christ. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 21, it says this about the end times. It says, But 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Who is in danger of unrepentant idolatry? Well, I think it's sometimes very easy for us to think that this is the danger for the pagan outside of the church. But I want you and me to see very clearly this morning that those who fall in Judges 17 and 18 are not the pagans, but they are the people who call themselves. I don't know what you noticed, but there is something shocking in our passage. Do you remember the young Levite that we've seen in both of the chapters? Well, look at who he ends up being. In verse 30 of chapter 18. Verse 30 of chapter 18. We are told that his name is Jonathan, the son of Gerson, the son of the great Moses. In other words, this is a direct descendant of Moses, no less. The great and extraordinary man of faith himself in the Old Testament. And yet this Levi, this grandson of Moses, is an idolater who does not have God as his king, and he simply does what is right in his own eyes. Do not think, friends, that your spiritual pedigree or my spiritual pedigree will protect us from God's judgment for idolatry. God will prosper me because my parents are Christians. God will prosper me because my grandparents were elders in the church. God will prosper me because I led a youth group 20 years ago. You know, every generation has a responsibility to respond rightly to God. And you cannot rely on your spiritual pedigree when it comes to him. It was a uh, Christian writer, Don Carson, who once said, First generation believes it, the second generation assumes it, and the third generation denies it. That's been a repeated pattern in church history. So if you are here this morning and you have Christian parents or grandparents, uh, or you have a, an otherwise impressive spiritual pedigree that's related to some great figure in the church. Know that if you have not responded personally and rightly to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, then you will end up simply either assuming the gospel, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, or even worse, denying the gospel outright in your life. And I want to ask you, my friends, have you responded this way to God? Have you personally? Turn away from us. Loosen your grip on it. To turn to God and to trust Him. Finally, 
Maybe. But uh, I could see your face if you were showing Just get rid of your eyes. Whatever that may be. But you and I know just how difficult it is to loosen our grip on eyes. For ultimately, idolatry is a matter of the heart. You see, we so desperately to our eyes. Because in our heart, we love them. Even our God. We love them because we think they will protect us. That these things care for us. That they will prosper us. And so what is needed is not someone to just tell you to get rid of your eyes. Now, what is needed is for you and me to fall in love with some, something or rather someone who is so much better. I think we have a clue in our passage about the aspect of idolatry in a very important seen it already in chapter 17, verse 6. Chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. You see it again in chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. You see, this is why they fell into idolatry. It was because they did not know God as their king. So what is needed is a king who will come into our lives and show himself to be so much better than the eyes that we have seen in our lives. You know, parents of young children understand this. If your young child plays with dangerous things in the home, it's no use just telling them not to play with those things. They'll just end up even more curious. No, what you need to do is you need to give them something so much better that those other things pay off to you in your life. So, brothers and sisters, we are the people who know such a thing, rather than idols that only deceive us, or this kid comes and he tells us the truth. Rather than idols that promise the world that deliver so little, this king comes and he promises to satisfy every thirst of our hearts. Rather than idols who are cold and lifeless and cannot ultimately protect us in the face of death, we have a king who loves us. Gave up his life for us on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our idolatry and find great joy. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, notice that he starts with who Jesus is. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. 
is the true God and eternal life. And so he will keep him if he had been keeping some promises. No human and he can still lies. Turn your eyes to him and think that he says, he does Thank you that in your great kindness, in a way that we have not deserved, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to be our King. And Father, we confess that like the people of Israel, we so often cling to idols in our hearts that take the place that only you ought to offer. Father, we confess that these things are so attractive to us. And so we pray that you would expel these lies from our hearts and give us true repentance. Show us more of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and may our eyes grow dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And Father, we pray that you would help us to not be people who only have the external appearance of godliness, but we pray that you can help us to be the people who sincerely love your word and desire to grow in your word and are eager to put your word into practice in our lives. Help each and every one of us 